Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, your host, and today I was joined by Alex Stewart. This is part two of the Premier League Season Review Podcast. Last week we covered the top four teams. This week we cover everyone all the way down to Stoke and Swansea. We talk about West Brom a little bit, uh, but we've decided to extend this to a three-parter and come back next week and talk about the relegated teams, perhaps have a look at the promoted teams from the Championship for next season, and talk about relegation more broadly, who's to blame, etc. We begin that conversation at the end of this podcast. Anyway, thank you very much for downloading today's episode. Hope you enjoy it, and here's the jazz flute. Okay, uh, let's kick things back off with Chelsea, part two of uh, the Premier League roundup. Apologies for the croakiness of my voice. I'm unwell, Alex. Oh. Yeah, exactly. That'll do. Blast. Right. Uh, Chelsea, it's fortuitous that we should start with Chelsea uh, because, uh, of course, as we all know, or as many of us know, uh, if you didn't know, we're announcing it to you now. Chelsea have won the FA Cup. What a surprise. I believe I remember saying that myself last week, Alex. I, I think you did. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. In a two-horse race, one of us picked one. One of us exactly. picked the other. <laughs> yeah, we end up Tifo's looking very the winner. clever. Either way, yes. Okay, well, let's talk about Chelsea uh, because they've had a very strange season. I mean, you know, they sort of ran away with it last year um, in a very tactical way. In fact, they were one of the teams that first gained uh, some notoriety for, for Tifo or Umaxit as we were then because we were interested in in the in the style and the formational change and system system change that Conte brought in with him, which seems to have been far less uh, impactful this season. Um, of course, it's you know it's a slightly higher note to finish uh, with an FA Cup victory, but they're outside of the top four, probably for the first time in quite a while. I'm not certain how many years, but I think that it will be the first time in a while for Chelsea. We all assume that Antonio Conte is uh, is leaving, so you know he really he's just signing out with the FA Cup trophy. I don't think that made any difference. So I'm not even really sure where to where to start because it's quite an unusual situation, isn't it, Alex? Well, I think the thing that was interesting about Chelsea last season is that the the shift to three at the back, which obviously famously occurred after they were beaten convincingly by Arsenal, um, caught everybody on the hop, as you said, and people were there were one or two teams that were playing three at the back regularly last season. Before that, Hull, I think, was probably the clearest example. Um, but it took other teams quite some time to adjust to that. Um, obviously, in Marcus Alonso, they had somebody that was comfortable in the left wing back position. Victor Moses adapted very quickly, but by and large, um, I think that was a a Chelsea team that, yes, tactically surprised people and and made it uncomfortable for people to play against them but wasn't necessarily a particularly great team in a lot of ways. I mean, they relied quite heavily on on what the the front two or three players were doing at that point. Um, There was still a significant reliance, even with um, Matic and, and Kante as the sort of central midfield pivot in that team last season. It was often Fabregas that came on, toward the end of a game and provided some of the creativity that unlocked things. So I think it was still, in many ways, it was still quite a a, a kind of functional workman-like team, um, apart from 
who was playing up top. Um, and obviously in, in Hazard, you had a player last season who, who was extraordinary. And I think it's interesting to note that it wouldn't surprise me at all if actually that's the sort of style that England adopt in the World Cup, to have a, a kind of fairly solid, um, uh, you know, whether it's a, a back six or a back seven, and, and then rely on the, the creativity and the, the, the striking ability of a few players up top that, that, that the others are there just to kind of win the ball back and get it to them quickly. Um, because Chelsea didn't really change this season, I think there were more teams that were playing through at the back as a result of what Chelsea had done. There were more teams, therefore, against whom other sides could could practice how they would defend against that, how they would defend against width and cancel out the overloads out wide. Um, and I just think it became easier to adjust to what Chelsea were doing, but they still, in essence, lacked that that central creativity before the ball was transitioned up to whether it's Hazard or Willian or Pedro. Um, and, you know, you, you still saw... Fabregas being used quite a lot. Um, drink water, that experiment didn't really work. But th- this was a team who was no longer a surprise, but still suffered from some of the, the the issues that were kind of masked last season by how different it was for everybody having to deal with that. Uh, and obviously, when you've got a player like Hazard, you know he is capable of winning games on his own. With, with individual moments of brilliance. The, the Giroud signing has proved beneficial for them um, as a kind of a, a different option up top. Um, Giroud, obviously, a, a proven Premier League campaigner who's, who's very, very capable at, at this level and was able to do something different from, from what Morata was doing. So, you know, they... They were still going to be a threat. They're still a good side, but I think they were overtaken by other teams playing better and 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 not being surprised by how they were doing stuff. Mm. Well, I guess a couple of other points to touch on with Chelsea. One of them being uh, that they sold Matic to Manchester United to break up that central pairing um, of last season that was so successful. And as you mentioned, Fabregas and, and Kante, I think, were the were the most common pairing in that in that position, which perhaps hasn't worked quite as well. But on a positive note, uh, Christensen's come into the team, uh, who's a young player uh, from their from their youth team, which is something we haven't seen that often uh, with Chelsea. So that's nice. It is, and obviously you've got um, Loftus Cheek, who had a a very good season on loan at Crystal Palace, um, and will be returning to Chelsea after a summer spent in Russia, and I think deservedly so. Um, so yeah, there's you know Loftus Cheek could be the answer for that. You know, having a midfielder who is at once creative, um, particularly with longer range passing, but is able to defend and and help secure that that central area with Kante. Um, I think Christensen looks to be a very elegant defender of the the sort of you know the the mold of if if you've got three at the back, it, it's extremely helpful. And we've talked about this with David Luiz before and the impact that his injury had having a defender who can bring the ball out when the other two centre-backs split off wide and and either provide a longer passing option or, or actually somebody who can carry it into midfield to then make a kind of a midfield three or a five if you're looking at where the wing-backs are. Um, 
and also step up and, and defend in that kind of space between the the back line uh, and the midfield line. And, and Christensen looks very much to be that sort of player. You know, he's comfortable on the ball. He's comfortable bringing it out. He's got a very good range of passing. Um, and if you've got, you know, Aspilicueta on one side of him and Rudiger on the other, then you've got the kind of the, the pace and the physicality of defenders that can cover for him. So... I think I think Chelsea will will be a strong team next season, of course, and you know there's there's a, a window in which they can recruit others. I think <clears throat> me too. Um I think they need probably additional cover uh, in the wide areas. I'm Emerson Palmieri who's come in to provide cover on really on, on both sides, um or he's predominantly been used for Alonso, uh, is in Italy's World Cup initial um, 27 28 man squad uh he's obviously not a bad player but i don't think he's really had the opportunity to kind of make his mark yet i think they could probably do with um somebody better than zapacosta um who is also in the Italy squad to to be the right wing uh, the right wing back option for them so there's room to strengthen the issue that you kind of look at is you know with with any side I say with any side, I mean, really, we're only talking about three or four here, but um, that that top four of this season, in terms of ability, in terms of squad, in terms of style, they do seem discernibly stronger than everyone else. So it's not just about being a good, as as with everything, it's not just about being a good team in your own right. It's which teams are, are likely to be able to improve to the point where they're better than a Liverpool or a Spurs or a Man United. And it, it's quite hard to see Chelsea making that step up necessarily. Um, I mean, obviously a lot will depend on whoever comes in, presumably to replace Conte. Um, and the thing about Chelsea actually is that I often find it hard to imagine them taking that step back up because they seem over the past 10 years to have um, you know, enjoyed the success of a waveform. You know, they they... they pop up to the top out of nowhere and then they kind of drift back off again, don't seem to be threatening. Um, and in fact, when they won the league last season, I couldn't imagine how that was going to happen either. So I think perhaps um, perhaps that's a positive for Chelsea supporters. Let's let's move on to uh, the next team, Arsenal now. And without looking, Alex, without looking, or if, unless you already have, I wonder if you might be able to tell me uh, which Arsenal player has made the most appearances for the club this season uh, in the Premier League. I'll give you a clue. It's not a goalkeeper. It's normally a goalkeeper. I um, my guess would probably be Xhaka. You looked. No, I didn't. <gasps> How dare you? You did look. You must have looked. How did I you promise. know that? Um, because there's not really anybody else that Wenger has felt comfortable playing in that role. El Nenny has not really appeared that much, and he's Xhaka's kind of the only midfielder that fits that and I think ahead and behind of that there was you know I I just remember there being a lot of different people playing a lot of different times so I I promise you I didn't look it up Okay, quite astonishing. I was hoping that would be more interesting than it it turned out to be maybe it was just (laughs) a surprise to me Uh, Okay, Arsenal again, uh, we sort of have to say I'm sure it's the same as we would have said for Chelsea um, will be slightly disappointing for supporters to finish outside of the top four, as it always is for any of those top six clubs. Um, extra disappointing for the fact that it was 
Arsene Wenger's last season, um, the Europa League semi-final didn't go well, as we know. So it, we, we have talked about Arsenal recently. We talked about uh, them quite a lot uh, as part of the Arsene Wenger podcast we recorded a few weeks ago. So, you know, I suppose trying to avoid treading over similar ground again. Is it much of a muchness, muchness with Chelsea? Is it, is it really a case of who they're going to bring in? That's going to be that's going to give us the ability to analyse what's going to happen going forwards. Yeah, I, I think more so than than with Chelsea for obvious reasons. You know, this this is somebody who, um, I mean, the only analogous situation in the last twenty odd years is is the person that replaced um, Ferguson at United. So. You know, coming in, having to deal with that legacy, with a group of players who are so used to working under one individual. I mean, I, I suspect that most most football players nowadays will will get used to the the general churn of management and and not expect necessarily to work under the same person for maybe more than two seasons because either they'll move or or the player themselves will will be transferred. So. I think people become quite adaptive. They they probably don't get rigidly stuck into a very specific set of training methods. Um, obviously, at Arsenal, that's that's not the case. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see whoever does come in, how much they do in in the transfer window. Whether the, the I mean, if if it's Arteta, for example, Arteta has not. Well, he's been at Manchester City um, working there, but I, I don't think it's very likely that that the the Manchester City players who are available would want to move to Arsenal um, and that the players that Arsenal would want to sign wouldn't be available anyway. So it, it's not like if it were established manager, an established manager who'd worked at another club as a manager and was able to bring in a couple of players that he had worked with consistently before to kind of bed him into the dressing room. Of course, with Arteta, that's less of an issue because he's he's played alongside some of those players. So yeah, but well, um, we should also mention, I suppose, uh, at this point that um, Aubameyang only arrived in January and scored ten goals. He can he can playing up up front with uh, Mkhitaryan and Lacazette. So in terms of attacking options, you know, the Arsenal squad really really isn't that bad. Um, and so I suppose you could make an argument that there 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 should be a coach out there that Arsenal could attract who can come in and do something with that team. Yeah, I, I mean it. It's not just the the quality of the squad, although obviously that's there. I mean, you, you've you've got a, a club that is in every other respect pretty well run, has a, a significant um, cash balance, a, a good stadium. It, you know, is in London. There's there's lots of things in favour of Arsenal above and beyond the quality of their playing squad. Um, I, it's to me that the squad is is still unbalanced. Um, and, you know, I think I, I've spoken to two totally separate Arsenal fans um, over the weekend who don't know each other and, and you know, the, they they both immediately identified the same issue, which is that there's there's never really been a kind of Gilberto Silva-style replacement in central midfield, and, and this, this, is, this is not some sort of revelation. I mean, this has been Arsenal's problem consistently, um, that for some reason, you know, some people have have tried and failed. Like you know, I suppose Coquelin recently, Elneny. Um, they need to have that sort of player in there. Um, there's there's quite a lot of exciting talent uh, in the top half of the pitch. I think the absence of Murtazaka as a 
as a kind of a leader as much as a, a player of some quality will will be felt. Um, I think they desperately need to identify a long-term goalkeeping target to replace Czech. Um, and there's, you know, that there are, there are weaknesses in the squad, definitely weaknesses. And I think what's, what's interesting, one of the reasons perhaps why someone like Arteta is quite attractive is that it seems with the, the signing of, of Sven Misla, um, that Arsenal are, are going to be moving much more towards a director of football, um, sort of driving the acquisition side of stuff and leaving a coach to manage the team. So in that regard, while while that sort of um, shift in operating procedure is going ahead, it, it might be worth getting in somebody whose who's primary focus is coaching and who understands the club and, and is sympathetic to what the club is trying to achieve by by doing that. Um, so it that that probably to me would be the most sensible way to transition at least this season and, and kind of see what happens. Okay, uh, let's move on and talk about Burnley now, who finished in seventh place, perhaps the uh, biggest uh, perceived overachievers potentially uh, of this, of the season. Oh, I don't quite think an incredible... I don't think there's any question of that at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's quite an incredible achievement, really, isn't it? And uh, I mean there were some people, there were some people suggesting that um, uh, Sean Dyche uh, should have been more seriously considered for the Manager of the Year uh, award. Um, I don't know what you think about that, but. Uh, uh, the other thing uh, that I've no- that I noticed about Burnley, which is interesting, is that uh, on their on their who scored summary page, um, James Tarkovsky, who we talked about at the beginning of the season as the player who came in to replace Michael Keane, uh, is their top rated player. Um, and actually, there was one of the nice things about who scored. You showed me this, Alex. If you scroll down to the bottom of the uh, the summary page of each team, you can kind of see their uh, formations used recently and most often. And, and also some uh, you know basic stats for the season. One of the things that I, I like uh, on this page about Burnley is it shows you sort of exactly how traditional they are in that the top goal scorer is their number nine striker uh, and the top assister is their winger <laughs> and the top aerials one is their centre back. And that wasn't the, that wasn't true for either Chelsea or Arsenal before them. So you know it sort of it paints a picture, doesn't it? But um, generally speaking, uh, an incredible achievement. Oh yeah, I I I, th- I think to to address your first point about manager of the year, um, yeah, I, I, it had to be Guardiola um, because to achieve a uh, hundred points um, to win the league, uh, not just so convincingly, but in such style, um, I think you know getting them to play the way they did that it had to be him. I think interestingly, though, underneath that, it's actually it's the managers who maybe you do think have, or one would think, have overachieved. So Sean Dyche, certainly, I would say uh, Rafa Benitez at Newcastle with the squad that he had, um, achieving 10th place and, and safety so comfortably. Uh, Roy Hodgson, I don't think Roy Hodgson has overachieved with that squad because I think it's a very good squad, but I think the position that Palace found themselves in after um, the the Frank Dubois experiment, not just because they hadn't got any points and they hadn't got any goals, but coming in and, and re-establishing the confidence of that dressing room will have been an incredibly significant task. And I think... Oh, yeah, and, and, they finished only, uh, and they finished only 10 points behind Burnley. Right, um, which is a, a huge achievement. Chris Hutton 
and David Wagner at the two newly promoted sides that have also stayed up. I, you know, they're, they're, what they've done is is remarkable as well. I, I'd say particularly David Wagner. So it, it's one of those things where you know the manager of the year is the guy who's who smashed it out the park and played the the best football. But there's there's some people there who've who've done an extraordinary job with much more meagre resources. Um, Burnley, I think, I think Burnley are. So when when you get statisticians talking about the Premier League, Burnley is always the team that that messes up the model. You know, if you're looking at, at trying to distinguish a trend between you know, how teams perform over time and and their XG and that kind of stuff. Burnley's always the one that that jars with how everybody else does. Um and yeah, they they were very good last season as well. You know, we were talking <clears throat> we were talking last season about about how good Tom Heaton was and about that central defensive partnership of Michael Keane and Ben Mee and then Michael Keane left to go to Everton and Tarkovsky who I saw play at, at Brentford a few times who I was very impressed with there he came in Nick Pope stepped in for Tom Heaton because he was injured he did extremely well the defensive shape has not changed and we've looked before at how how Burnley defend in a particular way by by using the centre backs to to block um, kind of funnel shots towards the goalkeeper. They've persisted with that. Um, I think Jack Cork has excelled uh, sort of screening that that defensive line, and and he's a player who you know a, a, a Chelsea reject who Southampton had for a while, Swansea had for a while, and. Yeah, he's he's always to me. He's always played extremely well wherever he is, and again, he seems to have sort of found a home at Burnley with with a manager who has confidence in him in a way that he's probably not had before. Um, yes, they are playing, I suppose, a, in some regards, a traditional style of football. You know, they're they're using at least one, if not two, quite big um, central strikers. They're looking to transition the ball quickly out wide and then get crosses in. Um, but it's you know that there's there's a a modernity to the way they're going about it to the the organization of the defense to the conditioning to you know how players are recruited it's it's not it's not just that there's some kind of weird 1970s throwback that's in amongst everybody else in the premier league and doing surprisingly well um so yeah okay eighth place everton um, I think we're going to have to speed things up a little bit now because we, as per usual, Alex, have sort of uh, droned on, on slightly. Yeah. We've rambled on. Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to say a couple of quick things about Everton and give it over to you and then we'll come back for uh, team number nine. Okay, Everton, two things I've noticed. The first one is that uh, they sort of look like an amalgamation of Premier League teams gone by uh, in that uh, they have uh, they have Walcott, Wayne Rooney, Sigurdsson, uh, Schneiderlin. You know, uh, Jack Yelker and Coleman and Baines, obviously, they're from the, the Everton teams have gone by. Jordan Pickford. Uh, they sort of seem, uh, as I said, like they've kind of been pieced together by someone who's thought, oh, those players are quite good. Let's put them in this team. Um, the other thing, of course, is that Sam Allardyce is leaving. And uh, finally, in their last match, they played a uh, they played a 3-1-4-2. So uh, try and summarise all that if you can. Yeah. <laughs> um... Okay, yeah, uh, recruitment. I agree has been in. I was going to say insane, which some people might think offensive. Um, I apologise if so, but that it 
yes, their their recruitment strategy over the summer, they threw a lot of of money at a number of players uh, in Sigurdsson, uh, Klaassen, Rooney, not in terms of of a, a fee, obviously, but in terms of astronomical wages, all of whom effectively seem to play the same position. Um, Schneiderlin, I think, probably would have been less of a gamble um, if he'd played more consistently, but his confidence was utterly destroyed after the time at United. He was a, a very, very high-quality player for Southampton, um, and and he's just totally gone off the boil. I think the acquisition of Keane probably did make sense, particularly going off his season at Burnley, and Pickford, I think, was a very good signing. By and large, though, Everton, like you say, seem to have have looked at uh, some sort of proven Premier League track record as the the main criterion upon which to sign players. In itself, that's not a bad thing. But what you have to ask then is, are you getting value? And are you getting players who are tailing off, um, who are towards the, the, the top well, they've got or 10 goals out of Wayne Rooney. Over. Yeah, and I, and I don't think Wayne Rooney's actually been that bad. I, I think Rooney's problem has been that he's been played in, in a number of different positions. You know, he's 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 started kind of up front all the way back to almost a defensive midfielder. Um, and and I think, yes, okay, there's an argument to say that a player of his experience and an undoubted technical quality... Um, is worth having in the team and, and sort of maybe you try and fit him in somewhere depending on who else is available. But he's he's not he's not anything other than a 10, really, now. I also don't think he's the global brand that Everton were perhaps hoping, uh, as evidenced by the fact that it's quite easy to forget that he's there. Yeah, I, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if I agree with both of those statements concurrently. I think... I, I don't think it's that difficult to forget that he's there, but I also don't think that that translates into him being a global brand anymore. Um, I suppose that that maybe the frustrating thing for Everton is that they do have a number of good younger players that have come through the academy. Um, obviously, Calvert-Lewin, John Joe Kenny, uh, Mason Holgate, uh, Tom Davis. You know, these these are the sort of players that I would be thinking about how I recruit sympathetically to them. Okay, well, in that case, let me ask you this then. Uh, Sam Allardyce has just left. Obviously, uh, they're going to be hiring a new manager. If it were up to you, would you bring in Julian Nagelsmann or someone like that? I'm trying I, to steer you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would give Nagelsmann a job pretty much anywhere other than Man City or Liverpool at the moment. Um, I, I think Nagelsmann would be a great fit um, at... Uh, I, I think the, the thing with Everton is that, okay, if you, if you look at the, the other seven clubs that we've discussed so far over this podcast and the last one, it's very clear what their identity is. That doesn't mean that it's a successful identity, you know, and we talked about how Arsenal and Chelsea have have not really performed this season. But if you said to somebody, you know, explain to me in a sentence how Arsenal try and play football or how Chelsea try and play football, it's it's pretty clear. And I think it is with all of those teams in the top seven. Everton, it's very hard for me to say that there's a distinct tactical identity at work there. 
And I think that recruitment plays into that because you've got too many of one sort of player and maybe not enough of another sort. Obviously, they were pretty hampered by the injury to Yannick Balassi that occurred towards the beginning of the season as well that robbed them of some of the width they were getting. So I, I think whoever comes in at Everton has to start from scratch, really, um, and and be somebody of sufficient confidence to say, OK, right, we are now going to be playing for the remainder of this, well, for, for, for the, the, the next season, we are going to play this formation, this style, this tactical identity. The players that don't fit that, we will get rid of. Players who do fit that, and they're, they're financially, they're clearly well-backed after last summer's stuff. So... I don't think it'll be a massive problem to to overhaul that squad. And you do have a spine of, of decent people there. I just think you need to integrate the the younger players more quickly and more thoughtfully and, and work out exactly what it is you're trying to do, what style of play and and which players work with that and then bring them in and don't have somebody who's chopping and changing tactical systems and a and a recruitment policy that seems to be like oh we'll, we'll we'll pay over the odds for a couple of attacking midfielders that we know have done stuff that's good um and then grab anybody else who's available okay uh ninth place leicester city uh managerial change throughout the season uh they're still playing their sort of four four one one formation uh, lovely counter-attacking football 20 premier league goals from jamie vardy much of a muchness uh, except for the fact that they haven't won the league Again, um, yes, I I mean, there, there's not a lot to say about Leicester, really. I think there was, they they have, or had... Harry Puel. Maguire, let's say Harry Maguire, he's been good. Harry Maguire's been good. Um, I think <clears throat> uh, Wilfred Ndidi um, has the potential to be really, really good. Mm. Could it be Mahrez's last season? Probably, yes. It could um, have been every, every one, couldn't it? Yeah, but I, I, I think... I think the writing is probably on the wall now. Um, 12 goals, 10 assists in the Premier League. He's a very good player. Um, he is a good player, isn't he? Yeah. I don't think that that's a shock to anyone. All right. Um, I, I don't want to. I mean, I'm going to feel unfair to any Leicester uh, supporters who are listening to the podcast waiting to hear about their team. But we've somehow managed to be recording for 30 minutes already. And um, <laughs> <laughs> we're only at nine. Uh, so I'm going to move things on. As should, should we just give the remainder in, like a mark out name. of five or something? Well, I was I'm trying to think about the best way to do it. I mean, and, and I was thinking, well, you know, we like to focus on tactics here. Let's talk about sort of a, let's let's do a, you know a very brief tactical appraisal as far as we can uh, with teams. So Newcastle uh, were, were finished in tenth place. You mentioned before a little bit of praise for Rafa Benitez as someone who's done very well, extraordinarily well. You said uh, to, uh, to 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 manage to guide. Newcastle to, to safety this season. Um, of course, their most common formation was a four-two-three-one, rather standard, wasn't it? But what is it about what Rafa Benitez did this season that, that so impressed you, Alex? I think probably, uh, and yes, they they have interestingly they have been pretty straightforward in terms of the way they've played. Uh, I, I think they they have used four across midfield as well. Um, it's it's about creating, uh, I think, a, probably a belief in that team that that you know they, this was not a, a squad that was enormously invested in upon promotion, um, and I think some of the key players that that got them up remained there. Um, so 
it's about saying to those players, you know, you're good enough to be here. That it's you don't just have to uh, consistently defend and and kind of try and shut everything down against the good sides that you can go out and have a go. Um, all of these sound like fairly horrific cliches, but it's true. I think it's very easy for a newly promoted team to, uh, or not even a newly promoted team. I think sort of anyone in the in the bottom half can can assume that the only way to to have some success in the Premier League if you're one of those sides is to to try and shut up shop and defend resolutely for 90 minutes and see if you can get something on the break and and in players like Matt Ritchie and Kennedy and John Joe Selvey um Newcastle have had players that are prepared to try and take the game on themselves um Perez I think has been a consistently uh good player for them um obviously uh Dubravka the goalkeeper came in at uh the the January transfer window and has been really really good um but also that that central defensive partnership largely Jamal Lascelles and Florian Lejeune uh has improved massively I think over what people would have expected them to be able to do so you know he's he's I think he's just done a very good coaching job. He's got the best out of players. He's got players in some instances to up their level beyond maybe what you'd expect. Um, he's instilled a degree of confidence and it'll be interesting to see what they do in the summer. You know, whether they whether they look to strengthen a little bit more because Newcastle are a team who in the past have, you know, they've had some sort of fairly workmanlike um, squad players and then they've gone and splashed a lot of money on on kind of the exciting the Tino Espria or whoever to, to kind of jazz things up a bit um, and it'll be interesting to see whether they do that or whether they they stick to what Benitez has been doing so far Okay, uh, 11th place we have uh, Chris, no, 11th mm. It is Crystal Palace It is 11th place, look at me yeah. Yeah. 11th place, uh, we have Crystal Palace. Now, we've spoken about Crystal Palace quite a few times before. Obviously, the big turnaround. Roy Hodgson should be celebrated for that. Um, let's not talk about Let's not do that again, because we've done it already. What I do like, the idea, and I think we spoke on this briefly the other day, was the idea that of uh, of late, uh, the the four four two has seen Andres Townsend and Zaha play up front as a, as a sort of two-pair, um, and quite wide at times with... MacArthur and Loftus-Cheek playing in the wider positions of the middle four, uh, two players who are more uh, considered, you know, to be better playing centrally. So that's, that's a very interesting sort of rotational, circular rotational thing going on there. So we should talk about that very briefly. And also a quick word on, on Christian Benteke, because obviously everyone's aware that he hasn't had a very good season from a scoring point of view. I think it was just three goals overall for the for the season. Milivojevic is uh, Palace's top goal scorer, which tells you something about the number of penalties that they've won. Um, but one of the things I did want to point out was actually that other than Andres Townsend, who had seven assists, Christian Benteke had five in the Premier League, and he has uh, by far won the most aerials. So I think I just wanted to get your opinion on the way that the team are playing now with Townsend and Zaha up front, and also the the value of Christian Benteke, even if it isn't as direct as it might appear. Um, yeah, so it is interesting what they've been doing. Um, you're you're absolutely right. I, I, MacArthur maybe is more of a natural uh, wide player, but Loftus Cheek certainly um, is is not somebody that you would think of as you know penciling in as your wide left midfielder every game. Um, and and Loftus Cheek has shown versatility um, 
by playing right midfield and central midfield as well. Um, I think what they've done is is they've they've looked what Roy Hodgson has has effectively looked at is who are my best players and how can I get them all in the team together. Um, and and that's not to diminish the kind of tactical thinking behind that but I think what he's done is he's he's asked that question he's worked out how best to do that and then he's worked out a tactical system that plays to it um so you know the 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 midfielders um particularly the wide midfielders push in and up quite a lot um not really making a kind of attacking square but but at times it has looked like that Zaha and Townsend obviously have license to get very wide but they're both players even as wingers, who whose natural inclination is to kind of drift in. Um, Zaha has played as a striker before, so it's not unusual for him. Um, and obviously, he's you know Zaha has been exceptional this season. So I, I think what what Hodgson has done is is said we are likely to beat teams by countering quickly from a, a solid basis. Um, you know. A, a good back line in which I think Sarko improved considerably as time went on and showed some of the ability that, that prompted Liverpool to buy him way back when from PSG, um, get the ball up quickly, uh, transition out wide to the strikers who are splitting, have midfielders making runs in and Palace have scored some really nice goals off the back of that. Uh, Benteke. Yes. Benteke is in this team which has been working Benteke is a useful option B to come in and and either supplant one of those strikers or to be used so one of those strikers moves back into their more natural wide position um, because he's very good at knocking the ball down or flicking it onto people Um, and if you've got someone like Zaha who can then burst ahead of that onto a, a, a flick through that's going to cause problems for anyone. Um, he just, I, I guess he's he's sort of uh, suffered from the fact that the Palace haven't been playing natural wingers as natural wingers recently. They've been playing them as strikers. So there's not as much cause to look for aerial balls that can then be knocked down because the people that are likely to provide those aerial balls are the ones that are waiting in the centre anyway. Yeah, Plus a little bit of a confidence thing, I think, because, I mean, he's missed a number of sitters, hasn't he? Uh, but that'll come back, uh, or maybe not. Uh, who knows? Let's move on to uh, 12th position. Uh, it's Bournemouth. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about Bournemouth uh, is to say this, Alex. Uh, 22 times this season, they've played a 4-4-1-1. But uh, beyond that, they've played seven other seven other formations in the league. Uh, which I wonder, does that say... In fact, I'm going to read them to you, Alex, because I think you'll like that. They've played a 3-4-2-1, a 3-4-3, a 3-5-1-1, a 4-4-2, pretty standard, a 5-3-2, a 5-4-1, and a 3-4-1-2. Now, what does this say about Bournemouth and Eddie Howe? Is it that he, as a manager, and them as a team, are prepared to be reactive, depending upon who they are playing? Is that the truth? Is that the Bournemouth truth? Yes, I think that probably is. I, I, I suspect that. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I followed Bournemouth as closely as would be required to explain all of those formational changes. Um, I think Bournemouth are the sort of side who, when they're playing at home, particularly 
have confidence in their ability to to pass and retain the ball. Um, they, interestingly, along with Southampton, Bournemouth are, are kind of the the Southampton and Bournemouth are the two teams in the bottom half who most tried to play like a team in the top half in terms of or top six even in terms of retaining possession, not lumping in crosses, not playing long balls, that kind of thing. Um, so stylistically, I I think Bournemouth have done well to to keep true to that style of football and not get absolutely hammered for it. By and large, that's what they did at home. I think away from home, they were much more prepared to try and tighten it up and to make uh, formational changes probably predicated largely on, on what the opposition were doing. And I suspect from the, what, 10 games they've had uh, where they, they played three at the back, that that's probably facing teams that were also playing three at the back. Uh, and in Daniels, you've got a, a, a left back who can definitely play as a left wing back. Um, Pew, likewise. Um so, you know, they they had enough versatility in their squad, I think. Simon Francis, who's their nominal right back, could also play as a centre half. So they've 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 got the flexibility there. Um I think it's yeah, I mean Eddie Howe uh, he's not necessarily gone off the boil. There's probably fewer shouts of praise for him um compared to last season when, you know, he steered Bournemouth to safety and he was de facto the next England manager I think there are, there are other managers who've shown that it's possible to bring a side up and uh, and keep them in the Premier League playing a certain way so you know he's he's not sticking out quite as much as he did um, but they deserve credit for what they've done yeah yeah okay uh, moving on to West Ham 13th place um, West Ham a team again who very frequently played three at the back uh, Marko Anasovic, the standout player this season, 11 goals. Also, Chitarito chiming in with eight. They're another team who've played an awful lot of formations, but I'm beginning to wonder whether this is just the way that who, score, who scored categorises formations. Uh, does it say a lot, or does it mean nothing? Um, if you're asking me, which I assume you are, um, I think it's... <sighs> It's sort of as good an approximation as you can get of how a team starts and defends, because generally speaking, I find that that the formation that you see is is probably quite a good indicator of of what a, def- a team's standard defensive posture is. Um, although often in a less good side, those those wing backs will. Uh, will end up being basically fullbacks um, who try to get forwards where they can. Um, we we said when David Moyes was appointed that um, he wouldn't kind of bottom out with this West Ham side that he'd he was actually not a bad fit for them, um, and that while he wasn't going to set the world on fire, he was going to keep them safe. And I think we were we were proved right with that. And I, I think. Moyes gets a degree of credit because um, West Ham have had issues off the pitch for most of the season. Um, some of it really quite unpleasant, and he's managed to to keep the focus of his players on what's happening, what they need to achieve. Um, 
Let's he's, play the appearances game again, by the way. Uh, number one appearances for West Ham. No looking, no looking. Um, number one, I would say... It's not a goalkeeper. In fact, a goalkeeper no. isn't in the top five. Well, no, but that's... I mean, I was going to say that about Moyes, you know, being quite brave in dropping Joe Hart, um, mm. and rightly so. Uh, is it Masuaku? It's not. Masuaku is not in the top five either. I'm going to give okay. you one more guess. <laughs> I wonder if you'll be surprised by the result. Okay. Um, He's old. <laughs> Mark Noble. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not, Again, it's not Mark Noble. Mark Noble's on the top. I'll give it to you straight. It's, it's, it's Pablo Zabaleta. Okay. 37 appearances yeah. uh, this season. An old man. A bald old man. Still I, kicking, it, kicking it hard. To be fair, there's... hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't... I, I don't know whether Sam Byram has had injury problems or he's just not impressed um, Moyes. But I, when when Byram moved from Leeds, I was quite excited for West Ham because I I really liked him. Um, in that he had played as a, a right back uh, and a right midfielder in in four four twos at Leeds, um, so was very capable of of playing in either of those positions and, and therefore one would assume naturally transitioning into being a kind of wing back. And, and he's just not really figured at all. Um, and I suppose otherwise they, they've sort of, they've, they've played Edmilson Fernandez out on that right hand side a few times. Um, but yeah, uh, I suppose Zabaleta, yeah, he's a, he's a consummate professional. He's, hugely experienced in the Premier League and if, if you're in a bit of a um, shit show scrap then having someone like him around who's a, a proven leader and is going to do his best every game is, is not not a bad thing um, No, no Okay, uh, position 14 it is Watford um, and Watford, we're back to a team playing with uh, mostly with back four uh, although 10 times this season they have played with the back three as well, so that sort of suggests an overall theme, doesn't it? A little bit of a trend with the league generally. Um, with Watford, it, again, it's sort of much of a madness. I mean, one of the things, I haven't focused on Watford very much this season at all, but one of the things I'm noticing about them uh, as I look at the summary of their team now is that there doesn't seem to be much of a change in the playing squad uh, from this season to, to, to last, is it? It doesn't appear that fresh. No, and I and I also don't think that they've really massively rotated either. Um, I think, I think they've yes, like you say, they've they've not added enormously to the squad, but nor within the the first eleven this season have they made that many changes. Um, I think Decore's been very good for them. Um, Richarlison obviously started very brightly what seems like decades ago now at the beginning of the season um, and has kind of gone off the boil a little bit. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're quite a workmanlike side. Um, they, you know, they've, they've got a couple of players who who are quite exciting, particularly in Richarlison. Um, but it, it's just not, it's not really happened for them. Um I think they've got some people in there like uh, Will Hughes, Delafeo, who's now 24. You know, there, there are players who potentially next season, if they are given um, the opportunity, could make Watford into a more exciting team. Um, Roberto Pereira is quite a creative player, um, but 
has only started 18 games. So, yeah, there's there's room for them to be more exciting than they they currently have been. Um, but it's whether that will happen. Um, you know, it's it, that they are now in that position of, I suppose, safety first. Um, that it's it's not necessarily a good idea to start trying to be ex- as expansive as maybe they could be. Um, I don't know. We shall see. Okay. Uh, are we on 15? Yes. 15. Yes, we are. We're going to be Fif- here for hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 15th place, Brighton, of course. Uh, Brighton, not, I know, but essentially nothing about Brighton uh, other than the fact, and this is not off the top of my head, I'm reading it, uh, that Glenn Murray scored 12 goals and got nine yellow cards. He sounds like a sort of very traditional uh, centre forward. He's great. <laughs> he's And he's about... Yeah, well, he's 34. He's not about anything. He's Ex Crystal Palace elite. Yeah. Um, I think, I think Brighton... Try and, try and say something about this. Yeah. No, what I'm going to say about Brighton is, is Pascal Gross um, has been uh, fantastic this season for them. Um, he was picked up from uh, Bundesliga 2 um, and he's he's a a very cultured, intelligent attacking midfielder. He he's able to pick lovely lateral passes, no, not lateral passes, uh, through balls that are you know on the ground and and kind of cut the angle of play for people to run onto. He's just a great player to watch. Um, he's and I I mean no disrespect whatsoever to Brighton by this, but he is probably playing below his level for them um and i'd i'd quite like to see him get the opportunity uh to to pull the strings for maybe a a side that that has more creativity around him or um a striker that's not glenn murray up front uh that's no disrespect to glenn murray scoring 12 goals in the premier league sounds like it the age of 34 is pretty great um and i think brighton and chris hewton deserve huge kudos for what they've done um but I, I think Gross is a little bit better than Brighton, and I'd like to see him do that somewhere else. OK, uh, Huddersfield with David Wagner. Uh, they managed to uh, attain safety, was it, on the last day or the, the penultimate game? I think it was a penultimate game, wasn't it? Um, anyway, it's the great return of Tom Ince. Tell me more. <laughs> um, I, I can't really tell you anything about about Tom Ince or his great return. Um, no, I mean I, the only reason I said that is because I know nothing about Huddersfield. Um, well, and, uh, Huddersfield have got from Aaron Moy. Yeah, and Aaron Moy is is, is a good player. Um, he's not a Pascal Gross, but he's probably not too far off. Um, was on loan in their um, promotion season from Man City and had the option to buy. Um, I think Huddersfield have. They've obviously they've done really well. Um, there haven't been too many additions, I think, to this squad either. Um, although Terence Congolo, um, who's come over from the Eredivisie, uh, has been very, very good for them. Um, uh, yeah, I was Mounier on loan last season, though. To I them. don't know. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to look him up now while you talk. Yeah, I'm looking him up. No, he's come over from Montpellier. Um. So, their top scorer, indeed, in the um, league. But it's uh, I, what I mean is that you know the kind of the the stalwarts of that side. Um, 
you know, Lerver, Schindler, Smith, Moy, Hogg, Van Lepara, they're all, you know, they're all part of the, the promotion team. Smith, um, Moy and Hogg sort of sound like a, a traditional fountain pen manufacturer or something. Oh, I was, I was yeah, some sort of like... Smith, Moy and Hogg. A firm of provincial solicitors. Um, right, listen, we, have, we haven't covered Huddersfield since the beginning, since the end of last season uh, when they earned promotion. Yeah, uh, so perhaps we'll perhaps we'll take a look at them again over the summer before. I think we before should do that. The, yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? Uh, Southampton uh, are next. I, I'm not oh. even going to introduce us here because um, you, as some listeners will know, you're a Southampton supporter, so I feel like you'll probably be able to ease into this one and remember the brevity. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, okay. We we've we've struggled once again to create chances um, and finish them. Particularly, um, there's been a lot of chopping and changing uh, under Pellegrino. We played a pretty strict four two three one. Mark Hughes then obviously came in and um, changed to a three at the back and and a formation that I think was much more sensible based on who we had available. We've scraped through by the skin of our teeth, really, um, not undeservedly, because there are some very good players in that squad, but it seems like... Yeah, I mean, surviving on 36 points is... is it's not unusual. I mean, it is... It's, it's, no, it's, it's not, but it, it's, it's, it's embarrassing considering the the quality of players that we've got. You know, people... You know, Lamina played for Juve in the last Champions League final. Romeo's been linked with loads of people. James Ward-Prowse is probably the best deliverer of a set piece, uh, English deliverer of a set piece in the Premier League at the moment. You know, it's like this. This is not a bad team, um, and and I think there's been way too much chopping and changing. I think there are too many players of a similar not necessarily similar type, but similar kind of position. You almost have a, a squad where you want to play four or five central midfielders. Um, and I suppose actually it, what would be quite interesting would be to look at, at how Palace have done stuff in that Palace have found that they can't really rely on their out and out striker and they've got very good central midfielders. So they've built a system that works on that. And I, you know, I wonder if we'd played, I don't know, sort of like Ward Prowse, Romeo, Lamina and Hoiberg across the midfield four and then had Redmond and Tadic up front, whether that might have done better. Maybe you should be the manager. Well, you know, people that comment... Why don't you get in touch? People that comment on our videos do sometimes suggest that that we should do that. And of course, there's a very, very significant difference between looking at tactics and having a an understanding of them that's sufficient to describe to people who don't understand them what's happening and actually coaching a football team. So, sure, yeah, I appreciate the compliment, sure. but no. Chicken, chicken. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on now. To the, to, I, I think we should do the uh, sort of chicken out uh, and do the uh, the three relegated teams in one, purely because we've now reached nearly an hour and these podcasts are supposed to last uh, half of this time. And also uh, because since there won't be a great deal of actual football uh, between now and halfway through June, short of the final of the Champions League, maybe we'll talk about them next week. <laughs> so, uh, Swansea City, Stoke City, West Brom, 
Uh, I mean, I suppose a good thing to say about West Brom is that uh, they managed to only finish five points adrift, uh, which was quite a bit of a miracle in, in and of itself, uh, if we were to look and talk about this four or five weeks ago. And also nice to see their assistant manager who took over has been named as a, as the as, as the full time replacement now. Um uh Stoke City also were relegated as were Swansea. I don't know what to say. What do you what do you want to say? You you would know. Uh, West Brom's form over their last five games was the same as United's, the same as Spurs, better than Liverpool, same as Chelsea. So like, what does that what does that mean then? What does it say about them that they managed to get through the entire season, finish on thirty one points, but that they can do that at the end? What is is that purely a psychological thing? Are the are the players to sort of uh, It's cuz it's cuz Alan Pardew's a crap manager. And and Darren Moore is clearly not. So I you know I don't I don't think this is not explainable by new manager bounce. I I don't think that you can look at just how bad West Brom were and the the achievement that <clears throat> you know more it's it's not just improving form. It's some of the some of the results that Moore got, and you could clearly see what was happening on the pitch. The way, not just the way the players were playing, but the the kind of the his presence there in terms of getting them to buy into what he was doing. You know, it's, it's I, I suspect he will have gone into the dressing room, sat down, right? We're fucked, but let's give it a go. And, right, so and, I mean, and they, how they, we're going to do it is. This, this, and this—you know, basic organisation. Right, well, listen, they they beat Tottenham. Yeah, they beat Newcastle away. True, uh, Chelsea. They drew two-two with with Liverpool. Uh, they beat Man United away, uh, and then they drew with, with Swansea uh, on uh, uh, back in back in April. I mean, the, the I suppose the reason I bring this up is because part of me wants to commend the players uh, for sort of trying to salvage it at the end and giving their best, etc. It's too late by this point, right? Um, and if we know that there's a squad of players there who are capable of of getting these results, which clearly they are, of course I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to shift the buck away from Alan Pardew. I don't like Alan Pardew as a manager either, um, and I'm I'm happy for, I'm happy for you know a, a, a reasonable portion or an acceptable portion of the blame to to sit with him and for him to lose his, lose his job for his performance this season. However, if you have a squad full of players who are capable of getting these results, and yet they manage to get to uh, the point in the season where there's five games left and they only, you know, they have 20 points gathered from the previous 33. What does that say about the players that suddenly they pull these results out of the bag and they haven't been doing that all year? Well, I think... Is that, is that, is that they're, worried, they're worried about embarrassment? They want to, they want to secure uh, better contracts for next year? I mean, I'm trying not to be cynical and look at look at it in a sort of players being selfish way or but it, it seems entirely i mean there has to be a large dose of uh, the psychological involved in this right you you would think but that i mean that's very hard to know without kind of being in the changing room i think there were but otherwise we're attributing we're otherwise we're attributing it all to tactics no no i, I don't think we're attributing it all to tactics i think you know there are definitely things that Darren Moore did that made sense and and you know having Rodriguez playing very much off Rondon rather than up alongside him having Brunt in a more central playmaking role um you know there there were there were definitely things that he did and he built on the the set piece strength 
um, I, I, look, I, I, I think tactical switches do make a significant difference. I think where where there's some sort of new manager bounce, it can be maybe a sense of relief that the old guy's gone or somebody feeling that they can come in and speak a certain way. I mean, it, I think Darren Moore had a, you know, he's he's had a connection with a club that's that's long standing in that he was a player for them and he's been on the coaching staff. So he's a familiar face to these people. And there was, I don't think it's just because cynically they, they, they had this new manager and they're like, oh, well, okay, fine. Let, let's let's try and play with you know some spirit or, or fight or whatever to impress him or to secure a better contract or that kind of thing. I think it's there has to be something more to it than that. And and I think maybe it was the despair of what Pardew was chopping and changing with, and even his appointment in the first instance if I were a player in the West Brom dressing room and I was getting Alan Pardew to as to come in as a manager I would just think oh really you know it's, it's such a lack of imagination and 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 a lack of of commitment to anything you know he's not he's not somebody who he's not good at his job anymore bluntly and and what Darren Moore has shown is that yes okay that there is more to managing players than than simply you know where you put them on the pitch and the things you ask them to do. And I think Moore has shown that he's capable of both facets of it. He's capable of tactical changes that make sense and he's capable of motivating players and getting, I don't want to say the best out of them, but getting something out of them in extraordinarily trying circumstances. Um, So, you know, it's absolutely right to give him the job. Uh, I think it's a, a great move that they've had confidence in him to keep him there. Um, and I don't know whether West Brom will bounce back at the first time of asking, but if they can if they can try and keep much of that squad together and hang on to people like uh, Hegazi, um, Rodriguez, um, maybe hang on to Livermore and, and Phillips, then they, they probably have quite a good chance of coming back at the first time of asking, which is obviously really difficult. But, you know, there's there's a core there. Who, who will know what to do Alright listen I reckon then maybe uh, we should have a chat about Stoke and Swansea next week because uh, we have reached the hour mark here and whilst I'm sure people are still incredibly keen to continue listening all day um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm busy <laughs> I'm flagging so, uh, yeah. yeah I'm flagging so uh, let, let's, let's do that then we'll come back and we'll do, we'll do a special relegation session plus Champions League final um, next Monday I that can't wait Great. All right. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us, Alex. I'll speak to you soon.